Good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter number 10. Last week in chapter 9, we talked about Jehu being anointed the king of Israel. His supplanting of previous king of Israel and the destruction of the king of Judah. This week we continue to talk about his reign as king. In 2 Kings chapter 10, the title of our lesson this morning is Purging God's People. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we do love you so much, Lord. We thank you for this day. We pray that you would bless the lesson this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, Lord, and which love you, thank you, and ask you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we see number one this morning is purging the house of Ahab. I remember uh, long ago, back when Ahab was king, God promised that his house would be as the house of, anybody remember? We talked about it last week. Jeroboam. Jeroboam. The house of Jeroboam, which was completely destroyed. None of his descendants left alive. His house burned down and turned into a dunghill. And that is what's meant for the fate of Ahab. Uh, the Bible refers to Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who was during her time the queen of Israel, the most evil leaders Israel ever had. Uh, which is pretty bad, considering Israel's history. And so they are going to be completely purged from Israel altogether. It says in verse 1, And Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel, uh, to the elders and to them that brought up Ahab's children, saying, Now as soon as this letter cometh to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses and fenced cities, uh, fenced city also, and armor. Look even out the best and meetest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, two kings stood not before him. How then shall we stand? And he that was over the house, and he that was over the city, the elders also, and the bringers up of the children, sent to Jehu, saying, We are thy servants, and will do all that thou shalt bid us. We will not make any king. Do thou that which is good in thine eyes. Then he wrote a letter the second time to them, saying, If ye be mine, and if you will hearken unto my voice, take ye the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to the and come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. Now the king's sons, being seventy persons, were with great men of the city, which brought them up. And it came to pass when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slew seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jezreel. Everybody had their breakfast yet? This will perk your appetite right up. Uh, verse 8. Oh, I know you're not going to be bothered by it. Yeah. And there came a messenger and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay ye them in two heaps at the entering in of the gate until the morning. And it came to pass in the morning 
that he went out and stood and said to all the people, Ye be righteous, behold, I conspire against my master and slew him, but who slew these? Know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord which the Lord spake concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord hath done that which he spake by his servant Elijah. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men, and his kinsfolk, and his priests, until he left him none remaining. And he arose and departed and came to Samaria. And as he was at the shearing house in the way, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Remember, Ahaziah was the king of Judah that he slew, who was a companion of the king that he slew last week. So the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah, met with Jehu along the way and said, Who are ye? And they answered, We are the brethren of Ahaziah. We go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. And he said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house, even two and forty men, neither left he any of them. And when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he saluted him and said to him, Is thine heart right, as my heart is with thy heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. If it be, give me thine hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up into the chariot. And he said, Come with me, and see my zeal for the Lord. So they made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab in Samaria, till he had destroyed him according to the saying of the Lord, which he spake to Elijah. So a lot to break down there. We see, first of all, that Jehu wrote letters. This tells us that Jehu had no desire to kill those that were innocent of the sins of the house of Jeroboam. He wasn't just running around, just cutting a bloody swath through the entire land of Samaria. He was only interested in slaying those that needed to be slain, those that God told him to go and end. Instead of charging in with sword drawn, he decided to attempt diplomacy. Right? Because as we mentioned last week, he was God's earthly representative upon the throne of Israel. Right? Because we know that because God anointed him. That God spoke to Elisha, and Elisha sent one of his servants with the anointing oil to go and anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel. So he is God's chosen representative upon the throne of Israel. And as such, he doesn't desire do anybody harm. He doesn't desire to kill anybody. He just wants to accomplish the will of the Lord. In the same way that God is not willing that any should perish. If somebody dies and steps off into eternity in that terrible place called hell, they do so against the will of the Lord. They do so defying God. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, the Bible says. Just like Jehu and just like the Lord, uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. 
Now, we're all adults in here. Who can tell me what an ambassador is? Yeah. Somebody that usually represents their nation in the midst of another nation. Right? So America has ambassadors to all kinds of countries. We have ambassadors to China, we have ambassadors to Russia, we have ambassadors to just about every country we can. Because depending on who's president, we want diplomacy. We want to get along. And we as Americans have ambassadors in other countries as well. Right? There are American ambassadors in these same countries, just like they send ambassadors to our countries. We, as Christians, are ambassadors of the nation of heaven. We may be American citizens, but first and foremost, we're citizens of the nation of heaven. Right? That's where we as Christians, that's where our nationality resides, if you will. And it doesn't matter what color your skin is, and it doesn't matter what gender you are, and it doesn't matter uh, what you look like, what you sound like, where you come from, because if you're a saved, born-again child of God, your nationality is heaven first. And you are then made an ambassador of whatever nation you reside in for, from that nation to heaven. Now, if we are ambassadors for Christ, like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, then it's our job to attempt diplomacy, right? Because an ambassador doesn't represent himself, does he? If the president of the United States calls for the ambassador of, I don't know, let's say England, and he wants to have a meeting with the ambassador of England, he doesn't want to have a meeting with the ambassador of England. You know what I'm saying? He wants to have a meeting with someone who represents the country of England. Right? Those are his purposes. It's not about that ambassador personally. It's about the nation he represents. In the same way, when we go forward into the world and we live our lives, we're ambassadors for Christ. It's not just about us. How you choose to behave, the words we choose to use, the actions we choose to take, they're not just about us. We represent heaven and its king everywhere we go, everything we do. We ought to live with that in mind. And as such, we, like our Heavenly Father, should attempt diplomacy with everybody because that's what Christ would do. And you'd say, they don't deserve diplomacy. Neither do you. We all deserve hell. There is none that doeth good. There's none, there's none righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together unlovely. All of us. We all deserve to go to hell. We're all sinners. We've all failed. We've all lied at some point in our life or stolen something or done something we knew we shouldn't have done. We've all failed. Therefore, we all deserve hell. And as such, we still represent Christ. He forgave us anyways. That's what makes it so wonderful. He wasn't supposed to, didn't have to, but he still did. He can forgive us, we should forgive others, and we should attempt diplomacy. Notice also he said, uh, he sent these letters out, right? He sent these letters out, and he's warning them about what's about to happen, and they respond. And you notice their response was, we are thy servants and will do all that thou shalt bid us." That's amazing. 
Because Jehu was ready for a battle. He assumed there was going to be a battle. Why? Because all throughout Israel's history with these people, it's been a battle. The nation of Samaria at some point was separated even from Israel itself. And then somewhere during Ahab's uh, administration as king, uh, they became united and Samaria was the capital of Israel. But now Jehu's slain Ahab and he knows that that part of Israel is loyal to Ahab because he's the one that united it. And so now he's going and preparing for a battle. That's been Israel's history. These people have always fought with Israel. That's just what he's used to. They're going to fight. Let's just go ahead and get ready for the fight. But he sends these letters anyways. Knowing what they're going to say, knowing they're going to say, then you come on and try it if you want to. Knowing there's going to be a war. But he sends the letters anyways. And his response surprises him. They say, you know what? We don't want to fight. You do what you think is right. You come in here, we do not want to fight. We are your servants. You tell us to do something, we'll just do it. What a surprise. God placed the rulers of Samaria right in Jehu's hands. Instead of in his way. And that's, that's amazing. Because when we fight in the power of the Lord, there is very little that our enemies can do against us too. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Because it may just be that when we do things God's way, those people that were once in opposition to us, those people that were once in our way, those people that we have a history of fighting with, we know there's going to be an argument. We just brace ourselves for the fight. And it may just be that along the way somewhere, as we continue to be faithful to the Lord, the Lord takes those people and places them on our side instead of in our path in opposition against us. Just like um, just like with Jehu, oftentimes we're ready for the battle, we're sure is coming, and then we're pleasantly surprised to find that God has already taken care of it for us. And then it says... Uh, Jehu comes along and, and all these things happen and he's got a he's got a pile full of baskets. What's in the baskets? Severed heads. Yeah. 70 baskets with 70 severed bloody heads in them. Blood dripping all along the place. And he gathers all of Israel to see this pile of bloody severed heads. They all show up. They're all there. They see this pile. And he says, now you've all accused me of usurping my master. Right? I was just some bloody, vicious man who decided he wanted to be king. Right? Nobody thought for a second that God called me to do something. He just assumed I wanted power and took it. So that's fine. You can accuse me of that. But who slew all of these? He said, you can accuse me of killing the king of Israel, the king of Judah, but who slew these guys? Because it wasn't my sword. It wasn't the sword of my men. So then who slew these men? Because if it was just about being king, I could have stopped where I was. Right? He could have stopped. 
he was king. There was nobody to challenge him, and he was done. And he could have stopped there, but he continued to do the will of the Lord, and he slew not just Ahab's descendant on the throne, but all of Ahab's house, because he's following the will of the Lord. So his question then is, who slew all of these? They may have claimed that Jehu was acting selfishly, but there was no denying that God was fulfilling his word about Ahab. And you remember all the way back, God promised, he said, one of these days, Ahab, your house is going to be like the house of Jeroboam. There won't be a man, woman, or child of your house left alive. And it was obvious that God was fulfilling his promise because Jehu had those heads where they were without so much as lifting a finger. God was working in the midst of Jehu in his time as king, and it was obvious, it was apparent. If we will so let him, God can so work in our lives that his presence within our life is undeniable. If we will focus on his will, not our will, his will, not somebody else's will, and do what we know to be right in our heart of hearts. Look, you can talk yourself out of any, any into anything you shouldn't be doing, out of any guilt that you don't want to be feeling, but at the end of the day, we know what the right thing to do is. We're saved, born again, we've got the Holy Spirit whispering inside of us. We know what the right thing to do is. And if we'll just do it, we'll get to a place in our life where the presence of God is so obvious in our life, people around you can't deny it. You've got something. I don't know what it is. There's something different about you. You've got something. Sometimes people call it that X factor, right? That unknown variable, whatever it is. But more times than not, that X factor they can't quite see, that's God. And they just can't perceive Him. They can't discern Him. It was evident who slew all those. It may have been the swords of men, but it was God orchestrating it from the background. Just like Ahab, we should be less concerned with our reputation and more concerned with doing the right thing. He said, that's fine. You want to you say that I was just greedy and selfish and power hungry? That's fine. But you've got to admit, you can see God working here. Right? He was less concerned with his own reputation and more concerned with doing the right thing. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. These great men, these prophets of God, preaching about their sins and their need to repent, and the people didn't like it, so eventually they just started killing the prophets because they didn't like what they had to say. Don't shoot the messenger, right? Well, they did. And then we see all of this take place, and Jehu's taking a little trip. Right? And along the way, we see they say, these men he comes across, they say, we are the brethren of Ahasia. Right? We go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. These people they were going to salute were not Jehu, right? There wasn't his kingdom. The, those that they were going to salute uh, were of the house of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was the king and Jezebel was the queen that they were referring to going and saluting. Evidently, they hadn't quite heard what happened to Jezebel. 
so these people were guilty by association. Right? You heard that phrase before, guilty by association? Sometimes it's a phrase that police officers use, right? Because if you're caught with some uh, with someone in possession of illegal substance, you'll be considered guilty of breaking the law because of your association with the person that's guilty of breaking the law. Right? You're guilty by association. Uh, they may not, uh, they, these particular men he came across may not have been of the house of Ahab directly, but they were friendly with the house of Ahab and were punished because of it. We should learn from this and be cautious of the friends we choose to get very close to, because it may be that their sin begins to affect us. Right? I wouldn't say don't be friends with anybody. I wouldn't say that. But I would say learn how far is too far with some people. When you let yourself get too close to people that aren't Christians, it's going to affect you. Spend time, hang out with your friends. If they're not church-going people, that's fine. Spend time, hang out with, you know, people that aren't necessarily agree with you or believe the way that you do, and that's fine. But the people we should be the closest to should be our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible says, iron sharpeneth iron. I had a, a coach in football that used to tell us, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. What does he mean by that? Well, coaches, they see a lot of generations of kids come and go, right? And what do they see happen? They see kids, good kids, make friends with bad kids. And what happens? It's not always boy meets world. Sometimes that bad friend affects the good friend and not the other way around. Right? More times than not, the bad friend doesn't turn into a good person. Right? The good person turns into a bad person. And that's what happens. That's why the Bible says, I know I've got it written down, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? We're saved, we're Christians, we're the light. And they're the darkness. They need our light. We had to go to the light. Jesus, what did he do? He had supper. He fellowshiped with publicans and known sinners. But we, doing the same, should be cautious that we don't let their sin infect us. Right? We see Jehu purging the house of Ahab. It ought to help us learn to purge some things in our life so that we can be more pure and holy unto the Lord. I promise you, there's good things in that. You're going to want that. You're going to want that purification in your life. There's joy and peace. There's a, a spiritual energy about the purity of the Christian life. But then we see, secondly, it's not just about purging the house of Baal, or purging the house of Ahab. It's also about purging the house of Baal. And... Verse 18 of chapter 10. It says, And Jehu gathered all the people together and said unto them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. Now therefore call unto me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let none 
be wanting, for I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Whosoever shall be wanting, he shall not live. But Jehu did it in subtlety, to the intent that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly. Uh, and they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent through all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left that came not. And they came into the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was full from one end to another. And he said unto them that was over the vestry, Bring forth vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. And they brought them forth vestments. And Jehu went, and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal, and said unto the worshipers of Baal, Search and look, that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but worshipers of Baal only. And when they went through to offer sacrifice and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed four score men without, and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hand escape, he that letteth him go, his life shall be for the life of him. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and slay them. Let none come forth. And they smote them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the captains cast them out, and went into the city of the house of Baal. And they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal, and burned them, and brake down the images of Baal, and brake down the house of Baal, and made it a draught house unto this day. Can't you almost picture this? Wouldn't this be a great episode of a TV show? This is like some Game of Thrones level stuff here. Giant piles of severed heads laying in the gate of the city. You know, now you got a, a king tricking all the Baal worshippers into their temple, right? Sends his guards in there to slay them all. Kill every one of them, nobody leaves alive. And then they break down, they burn the images, they break the images, they break down the house, and they bring it down to rubble. And they utterly destroy, they purge the house of Baal. Notice it said Jehu did it in subtlety. Unlike the destruction of the house of Ahab, Jehu uses deception to destroy the house of Baal. Right? But we see, as we're going to jump a little bit down to verse 30. Verse 30 says, The Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit upon the throne of Israel. In verse 30 we see the Lord praised Jehu. Right? But what did he praise him for? He praised him for doing all that was in his heart concerning the house of Ahab. Right? He mentioned nothing about what he did with the Baal worshippers, did he? He doesn't say uh, any of this about his methods for destroying the house of Baal. We do know there are a couple of rare moments in Scripture where dishonesty is the only course of action in order to accomplish God's will. But it should be only done as a last resort. For example, Esther's deception toward King Ahasuerus. Anybody remember that Wednesday night Bible study we did over the book of Esther? And they've declared that all Jews are going to be killed. 
right? And King Ahasuerus, after he declares this, has no idea that the queen he's learned to love so much is, in fact, one of these Jews. But you see, Esther and her uncle Mordecai come up with a plan. And they say, we're not going to tell him until the perfect moment. Right? So up until that moment, there's a lot of secret keeping. There's a lot of dishonesty between Esther and King Ahasuerus. But it was done because it was the only way to accomplish the Lord's will in saving the Jews. Dishonesty is on rare occasion used to accomplish God's will throughout Scripture, but only as an absolutely last resort. Christians should not get in the habit of lying. The Bible says in Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. The lips that get used to lying, lying lips. I'm watching that TV show Loki, right? Loki would have lying lips, right? Remember that first Thor movie where he goes to try to trick the guy into letting him into the the other realm, and he does. He's not buying it. The guy says, "What happened? Silver tongue turned to lead." Lying lips. When you get used to solving your problems with dishonesty and lies. That is an abomination unto the Lord. We should get used to trying the truth first and foremost. You'd be surprised how often people appreciate honesty and truthfulness. How many times they say, well, you know, I don't agree with what you're doing or I don't agree with what you said, but I can appreciate your honesty. How many people have ever heard that before? I can at least appreciate your honesty. You know, if you mess up at work, how many people are going to blame somebody else if they can on a screw-up at work? Almost everybody, right? But if you come to the boss who's used to people blaming it on other people, and you come to the boss and you say, yeah, you know what, boss, I messed up on this one. I'm, I'll take the hit on this one. This was my fault. I should have put it there, and I put it here, and it messed up, and it's totally my fault. It won't happen again. I'm real sorry. He's going to say, well, I can't, you know... I can't say that I appreciate what happened here, but I can at least appreciate your honesty. Right? We've heard that before. Because the truth is blessed by the Lord. Uh, lost my place. So here we go. Joshua 24, 14. Joshua says to the children of Israel, Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Right? When we serve the Lord, when we live the Christian life, it should be done in sincerity and in truth. Worship should be sincere. If you can't be sincere about the hymns we sing, or about the words that you say when you're, I don't know, teaching a class, or you're saying a prayer to open the service, or whatever it is, if you can't be sincere, you shouldn't do it. We should serve the Lord, we should worship the Lord in sincerity, and in truth. You know, you don't just serve the Lord on Sunday. If you're a Christian, you serve the Lord every day of your life. We serve the Lord all the time. We are His servants. That's our main occupation. And we should do so with truth. That's not what Jehu did. And we can see the Lord didn't appreciate it. But also then it says, They came into the house of Baal. Now, how many read that and thought there's a house for Baal like there's a house for God? Have you realized that yet? 
They built a temple next to the temple of God, and they built a temple for Baal. He had, there was a building in Jerusalem, maybe not Jerusalem, but in Samaria, that is a temple for Baal worship in Israel, like they built for God. That blows me away. God's people had drifted so far from the Lord, He was almost forgotten about completely. Anybody remember the story we talked about not that long ago where they went into this old building that was never used and it was used for worshiping Jehovah God? And they found a bunch of relics scattered about the room and one of those relics was the Bible. Anybody remember that story? That's how forgotten God is in Israel at this point in our story. But even in this spiritual desolation, it's still not too late to repent unto the Lord. They had gotten so far about God, they almost didn't know who He was. They almost didn't know His name or had almost never heard of Him. Who is this God that parted the Red Sea? Who is this God that spouted water from a rock? Who is this God who produced golden manna each morning with the dew? Who is this God who had them wandering the wilderness for 40 years and their clothes never worn out and their shoes never got old? Who is this God who when they walked through crossing the Jordan River entered into a promised land with 13 warring nations, God gave this bandit of slaves victory after victory after victory until they had conquered the whole land of Israel. That wasn't by their might. They were slaves before they left Egypt and then they wandered a wilderness for 40 years. There's not a whole lot of combat skill you pick up doing that. But God gave them victory. Who is this God who made the sun stand still in the sky till Joshua was done battling? They'd forgotten about who God was. It's almost completely erased from Israel entirely. But he says, like he did with Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now being around here around Texas, we don't know a whole lot about snow. Right? Until this past year. <laughs> now, you don't realize how white snow is until you're inside the house where there's no electricity and it's dark and you open the door to go outside to let the kids play in the snow and it is bright like the sun. It's so white. White didn't even begin to, to, to paint the picture. It's almost glowing. It's radiant white. That's what God's saying here. Your sins are like scarlet. The color scarlet is like the color of dark blood. You know, somebody's got thick blood, it's darker than when it's like lighter blood. Really thick blood is very, very dark red. It's very dark. 
And he's saying you're, that's what your sins are. They're like scarlet. They're a very dark red. They're like blood, thick blood. But I can make them like snow. I can make it pure and clean. I can wipe your record clean of all your sins if you will just come to me. That's what he offers Israel here, and it's what he offers each and every person on planet Earth. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. From the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, the Bible says that Jehu departed not. It says in verse, let me find it. In verse 31, Jehu took no heed to walk in the laws of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. Uh, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. So we see, unfortunately, like all the other kings, he goes a great distance with the Lord, but then he chooses to only go so far. He gets to that point and he says, okay, Lord, this is as far as I go. You can keep going. I'm not going with you. This is as far as I want to go right here. Goodbye. Like so many of Israel's kings, we as human beings have a tendency to categorize sins by degrees of evil, don't we? according to our particular perspective. For example, we might skip church one Sunday because we don't feel like going. But we would say then, hey, it's not like I killed anyone. Right, you ever heard that before? Somebody does something they're no, they know they're not supposed to do and they say, yeah, I know, I should have, but it's not like I killed anybody. Why? Because we... We, have a, we categorize sin by degrees of evil. Skipping church isn't as bad as killing somebody, so we might say. But all sin, note this if you don't already know this, that all sin is equal to God. All sin is equal to God. Now let me explain that because when you hear that, you might think that that means that murder is less bad than you thought it was. Murder is like skipping church. It's not such a big deal. But what it actually means is that skipping church is worse than you thought. Because all sin is equal to God. Doing those things you think that are not so bad are worse than you think they are. They're like murder to God. Because it's all equal in the eyes of the Lord. You say, well, Brother Matthew, I don't think that's true. I'm so glad you said that. Romans chapter 3 Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Who is that? Who's under the law? Every single human being born on planet Earth. You're saved. You're not saved. You're Jewish. You're Gentile. You're American. You're any other country on the planet. It doesn't matter. Every human being is held accountable to the law of God. And some might say, well, Pastor Matthew, that's not fair. Not everybody's heard of God's law. Well, the Bible says that God plants His law in us at birth. Not everybody's read the Bible, right? But everybody knows murder's bad. you got a few exceptions, a few psychopaths out there, a few sociopaths who just thought that at one point and then convinced themselves otherwise. 
people who need psychological help. But by and large, people know murder's bad, right? To kill somebody, that's bad. Nobody had to teach them. They didn't have to read the Bible to figure that out, right? We have the law of God written in our hearts. We call it a conscience, right? Everybody knows what a conscience is. It tells you the difference between right and wrong. Now, as we become Christians, we learn more steadily what God determines is right and what God determines is wrong because as we live life, the world and the devil have a tendency to sort of sear our conscience with a hot iron and destroy it or change it and manipulate it in ways it wasn't meant to be changed. But every person's born with a sense of right and wrong, and then we have a tendency to categorize sin by degrees of evil to excuse away our own sinfulness. Well, what I'm doing is not that bad. It is. It's that bad. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all guilty of sin to the point where God, in His justice, like we talked about last week, has determined us all deserving of hell. But luckily, He's also a God of forgiveness and mercy and love and has died for us, paid our sin debt, and given us Jesus Christ so that we may have life eternal instead. But to Jehu, and the point of all of this I'm telling you is because to Jehu, the sin of Baal worship was much more evil than that of the golden calf, which was the sin of Jeroboam we were talking about. Because Jeroboam, you remember when he was king, he was afraid that his people were going to go worship in, in uh, Judah. So he created the golden calves and said, this is what your God looks like, worship it here. Which is a tremendous sin. Romans 1 talks about making the image of God like him to the image of four-footed beasts. And how terrible a sin that is. And the Bible says here that Baal worship is really bad to Jehu, but this is close. This is okay. I mean, it's the right name, right? We gave the right name to the golden calf. They're worshiping this, but they're calling it that. So, I mean, what's the big deal, right? But it is a big deal because all sin makes us guilty. And then we see the phrase, Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, that we read a second ago. Jehu did what God asked him to do, though, didn't he? God asked him to empty out the house of Ahab. That's exactly what he did. Wiped them all out. Nobody left standing that was of the house of Ahab. Nobody left standing that appreciated the house of Ahab. They're all gone. Ahab who? Nobody left in the house of Baal. That's what God told him to do. He did exactly what God asked him to do. He purged much evil for Israel, but his heart never truly belonged to the Lord. Well, remember when David was anointed king of Israel. That was a king. Little 15, 16-year-old guy walking over into a battlefield with his shepherd's gear. Here's a giant armed to the teeth, cursing at his God. He says, you know what, fellas? Enough's enough. I'll be right back. I got something to take care of real quick. Goes down into the valley, comes back up with a severed head of Goliath. He says, okay, I'm sorry, I was, what were you saying? That was a king. Why? Because he was faithful 
to the Lord. He loved the Lord with all his heart. Was he a perfect man? No, he wasn't. But he loved the Lord with all his heart. You don't have to be perfect to do that. But even though Jehu did what God told him to do, he didn't love the Lord. He never really truly belonged to the Lord. You know, there are those that work fervently for the Lord today. They work tirelessly for the church. They work tirelessly for the Lord. They'll stand up. They'll be exhausted, blood, sweat, and tears for the Lord every Sunday, every week, several days a week. But their heart is far from God. Matthew 15, 7 says, Jesus said, You hypocrites, talking to the Pharisees. Well did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you, saying, This people draw nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus is talking to one of the seven churches, and he says, I know thy works and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which are apostles, and hast not found them, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Why? Because thou hast left thy first love. You see, Jehu purged the house of Ahab. He purged the house of Baal, but it never really mattered. Why? Because all that stuff's going to come back at some point anyways. Why? Because Jehu's heart was not with the Lord. And when he did that work, he did it without the love of God in his heart. And when you work for the Lord like that, it doesn't keep. When we work for the Lord, we ought to do so with love for God in our heart. Because that's what God wants. He doesn't want your muscle. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your mind. He wants your heart. Heart first. Then the rest of it comes later. Labor for the Lord without love for the Lord becomes meaningless. Israel cycles over and over again. Because when they labor for the Lord, it was meaningless. It lost its purpose, its value. And therefore, it lost its savor. And therefore, it ceased to exist. That's what happens to Christians. You serve the Lord. You begin to do so, and you lose your meaning. We lose our meaning. And we begin to serve the Lord just as a, a repetition. It's just what we do when we wake up on Sunday. And then we go through the motions and we nod our heads and we do the things that people are supposed to do. But when we do it without the love of God in our hearts, it becomes meaningless to the effectiveness, but also to us. That which we once yearned for and was excited about Saturday night becomes mundane. It becomes boring because we've lost our love for the work of the Lord. And if you find yourself in that place... Draw yourself back. Take a step back. Rediscover your love for God. Take a fresh look at the cross. Relearn to love the Lord. Look at the pain He went through for you. Look at the love He showed you your whole life when you were in those places alone and scared and angry and sad. You were never there alone. You can almost remember like an invisible hand, like, a, like somebody there, like a whisper keeping you alive in those moments. 
that was God. When you were unlovable and you were alone, you were not unloved and you were not alone. And we will remember why we love the Lord. We'll remember why we want to serve Him. So labor for the Lord without love for the Lord becomes meaningless. Let's bring meaning into our worship for the Lord. That is all we have for this morning. We will be back this morning in, yeah, 10 minutes.